So uh, last Sunday, I said, you know, we were in the middle of uh, raising those funds for the Ukraine, and we were uh, going towards the, to, you know, giving to the end of April to raise $100,000 to put with our church planning partners in Ukraine for refugee relief and so on. And so obviously, we just, we just, we just aimed too low because you blew past the $100,000 mark last week, and uh, you've already sent that money over. So way to go. And uh, now I want to give you a couple other stats here. Let me talk to you about uh, caring for orphans, over $110,000 each to Place of Hope and for kids, over $600,000 raised, um, solar schools in um, and 136 uh, trained in that in Chad, Malawi, Haiti, in India. Uh, all of this has happened as a result of uh, Ride for Orphans, which took place yesterday, and uh, this has happened over the last 10 years, and it's been coordinated by just one of the, uh, those quiet, humble, gracious, incredibly and ironically never rides a bike, supercharged Christians <laughs> I've ever met in my life. His name is Craig Kendall. And Craig, would you just come and stand here with us? Come on up here. Come on up here, man. Come on. Come on. Come on, man. Let's thank Craig. <laughs> Way to go, man. You're, you're just unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Way to go. <laughs> I asked Craig if he wanted to sing, and he said no. So we, we won't get the benefit of that. But uh, we, let me just tell you, this, people may think, well, this, that's just what he does. That's in addition, he does this in addition to everything else. He's just a gracious guy who's discovered something that Tim's always teaching us, and that is you discover your passion, your gift, how God's equipped you, and then you give your life in service to Jesus. Craig, thank you for the inspiration, brother. Bless you. Thank you so much. If you're, if you're new with us today, uh, my name is David Cassidy, and I'm the pastor here at Spanish River. Great joy to be with you. I'm so thankful to be home. I, I've been dodging canceled flights for three days. I've been trying to get back, and uh, so I'm very, very thankful. to. I got in last night, finally, about a, a, a plane landed about 11.30. I, went, I made three different trips to the airport trying to get back, and uh, so very, very grateful to be here. Slept fast, and... Um, <laughs> I've been feel just as anointed as ever, so, or annoying, something like that. Anyway, uh, if, you're, if you'd like to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, please. Um, we're in a series called The King of Hope, and we're, what we're doing is we're working through Matthew's gospel, and what we're doing in it is, is saying, what does it mean to be the disciples of Jesus, to sit at his feet, to follow along in his path, to hear him call our name and say, come and follow me, and like... Peter and James and John and Andrew, they left their nets, they came and they followed him because Jesus didn't just teach them, giving them a download of information, but by his grace, he reached into their hearts and he brought to them transformation. And that's vital because those of us who, who call ourselves Christians should be keenly aware that one of the things that we do have to deal with is that there's a kind of version of Christianity. It's not just confined to North America. You can find it in many places. It's a very thin version of Christianity. 
It's a nominal Christianity. It names the name. It talks the talk. It never walks the walk. And so it, it, it views Christian faith as a kind of attendance thing. I'll, I'll come a couple of times a year or maybe once a quarter or something like that. I'll attend two things, but I, I, I don't mind having Jesus in my life, but I don't want Jesus to really mess with my life. But he does mess with our lives, and he gets into us, and he begins to see his life formed in us so that more and more we reflect his love, his life, his grace in this world, which is broken by sin, and needs his mercy. We need his mercy every day. That's why we need the reminders, like at the Lord's table today, to say we're sinful people. Uh, if you're looking for a church, you have found a church full of sinful people, you should feel right at home. And, um, and we know we need a Savior, and that's why we proclaim him. And so we're glad uh, to offer him to the world. When I was in high school, one of my best friends' name was Mike Connor. Mike had one brown eye, one blue eye, so we just loved that about Mike. Mike was always a little different. And um, right after he graduated, he moved into Chicago, and um, along with him and uh, another friend of mine named Jim, we were on the Dan Ryan Expressway. And if you've ever been in Chicago on the Dan Ryan Expressway, kind of makes I-95 look tame, and uh, people flying about on, on there. And this guy cut him off, and Mike rolled down his window and exhorted him and um, <laughs> prophesied something. I won't repeat what he said. I will not repeat what he said, but in the back seat, my, Jim said, Jim said, Mike, Mike, you cannot talk that way. You cannot speak that way. You have a Jesus bumper sticker on your car. <laughs> and Mike said, oh, you're right. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. When I get home, I'll take it off. <laughs> That's <laughs> one brown eye, one blue eye. Mike just looked at life a little differently. When we encounter Jesus Christ, we find him digging down into the core of who we are and going to work through his word and through his spirit to conform us to his image. And this is why we can have hope. He's the king of hope. Because if we just look in the mirror, if we just take account of who we are in ourselves, in our strength, with our brokenness, with, with our thoughts, our motives, if we actually took an account of what's going on inside of us, we could become very discouraged and very dismayed. But if we look to Christ, who is our righteousness, and we depend on the Holy Spirit to fill us, and we look to the Word of God to transform us, then we can have hope. And I want you to notice that word hope today in our reading, which is in Matthew chapter 12, and it begins in verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make him known, and this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, and this is Matthew's longest Old Testament quote. This is from the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not extinguish until, until, notice the time word, he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. 
Jesus is the person who, when he meets someone whose heart is bruised, he is gentle. This morning, if your heart is bruised, if you are a wounded person, Jesus does not say to you, he's not the person, he's not the the guy who comes up and says, get over it. Pull yourself together, man. Grab yourself by the bootstraps and get going. No, no. A bruised reed, he doesn't go and break. He doesn't press you down. A dimly burning wick. If your faith, your faith this morning is barely there, you have deep questions, you, you have skepticism, you have doubt. Maybe you've been a Christian for some years and now you're wondering, I, I don't know, I don't know where I am in this thing and you're, you, fa- you feel like your faith is very weak. Friends, let me remind you this morning, we are saved not because our faith is strong, but because we have faith in a Savior who is strong. We are not saved because of the strength of our grip on Him. We are saved because of the strength of His grace that is poured upon us. We are not saved because of anything we have done. We are saved by everything He has done. And that is why when when our, our hearts are diminished in their zeal, we feel like our love has grown cold. Everyone around us is singing, but we have no song. Jesus does not go, I say, I say you're dimly burning wick. Just get out. That's not what he does. That's not what he does. He breathes gently. He breathes his spirit upon us very gently, and he brings us to life. And that is why he stands before us today as the king, he says, of hope. For the bruised, for the broken, for the hurting, for the mourning, for the poor, for all those who know that they are failures. Every single morning when he got up, C.S. Lewis would stand, the great C.S. Lewis, the friend of Tolkien, would stand in front of the mirror with his razor and he would look in the mirror and say, good morning, brother ass. When you and I are realistic about the state of our lives and we know who we are and yet the Lord calls us beloved. You are his beloved and he gently deals with us. Here in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew has Jesus remind us of the greatness of the salvation that he brings to us. First of all, this whole chapter begins with the disciples walking through a field, and they are hungry, and there's some, there's some grain in the fields, there's some wheat growing, and they break it off, and they, they rub it together, and they get the the seeds out, and they, they eat those. But they're doing this on the Sabbath. And there are some religious leaders nearby. And they say, your disciples are breaking the rules of the Sabbath. And Jesus says to them, a greater than the temple is here. And then a little bit later in the chapter, they say, some of these religious leaders, we need a sign from you, Jesus. Show us a sign that you really are the person that people claim you to be. And he said, no sign will be given to you but the sign of the prophet Jonah. And just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so also the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. And then he will rise. And I'm telling you, a greater than Jonah is here. And then he said, then he said, and just as as the, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, came to Solomon to hear his wisdom, 
came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. I'm telling you that a greater than Solomon is here. Greater than the temple. Greater than Jonah. Greater than Solomon. This is the king of hope. Greater than the prophet, Jonah. Greater than the priesthood in the temple. Greater than the king, the wisest king of all, Solomon. Jesus is revealed in Matthew chapter 12 as our prophet, our priest, and our king. He is the one in whom we can find hope. Why? Because he's greater than the temple. He offers a greater cleansing than the temple. Now, it's impossible, frankly, for any of us who are Gentiles to imagine, to have the imagination of what the temple meant to the people with whom Jesus is having this conversation. It would be, I don't know what could in North American Christian culture begin to sort of equate with the temple. It would be kind of like taking First Baptist Church and the White House and the Supreme Court and just putting them all together in, in one thing. It's the, it's the government, it's the majesty, it's the law, it's religion, it's the faith. For these folks, this was the center of the world. It was, in fact, the center of the universe. It's where God met with his people, and it had all these boundaries. It had a place for the Gentiles. It's called the court of the Gentiles. They filled it up with tradesmen. You read about this in Matthew 21. We're going to get there. But it was all about keeping people at a distance from God. Keeping people at a distance from a, a holy God. You sang a few minutes ago, only a holy God. And I looked around, many of you were standing there with your hands up and you're, you're worshiping this holy God. And you heard Bethany say, Lord... You are the one who gives us access into your presence. And you kind of go, yeah, okay, yeah, I was in Sunday school. I've heard that before. And you don't really stop to ponder the mystery, the wonder, the astonishing privilege that that is. In the temple, there was a place, the inner sanctuary, called the Holy of Holies. It wasn't just holy. It was the Holy of Holies. And the only person who could go in there was the high priest once a year on the great day of atonement, of atonement. And he went in there with the blood of the sacrifice to, 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 to see the sins of, of Israel forgiven. Only once a year, one day, and only him, only he could go in. Then only priests could go into the holy place. And only they could stand in the outer court. And then there's the court of the women because God knows the women can't get close. Gee whiz. And... And then the Gentiles are way over there. So there's all these boundaries. And then there were these Sabbath day regulations. The Mishnah had over 39 different rules for how you could make sure you never broke just the Sabbath. Three quarters of a mile journey and so on. And if you're, you're rubbing the grain together, that's harvesting. You're working. You might be, you're breaking the Sabbath. And so everything is based in rules, performance. Don't mess up because if you mess up, you can't get close to God. He is holy and you are not. And then Jesus turns, to, or turns around and he says, something greater than the temple is here. Why? Because what you find in Jesus is a greater cleansing than anything the temple could ever offer. For a worshiper, 
for a worshiper who wanted to come to the temple, they would go to those money changers in the temple and they would exchange their Roman currency for temple currency. It had its own currency. And then they would purchase a lamb and they would take the lamb to the priest. And of course the lamb had to have particular characteristics. Male lamb had to be, listen to this, spotless. It had to be spotless because the lamb represents the worshiper. The lamb is the sign of the worshiper drawing near to God. And so the priest would then inspect the lamb. Listen to me, friends. Does the priest inspect the worshiper or does the priest inspect the lamb? He inspects the lamb. And if the lamb is acceptable, then the worshiper is acceptable. But only the lamb goes in. The worshiper stands here and looks and would long to be there in the Holy of Holies. And Jesus said, something greater than the temple. John the Baptist looked at him and said, behold the lamb. And this morning I want you to know, you can come into the Holy of Holies. You can draw near to the living God. You are a holy person. You are a priest that is welcome in the Holy of Holies because you didn't come to church today with a lamb 2,000 years ago, the lamb laid down his life and shed his blood for you and the veil was torn and, and the Holy of Holies in heaven, not on earth, in heaven itself was made wide open and you can draw near to the living God. And does God inspect the worshiper or does God inspect the lamb? God inspects the lamb, and he looks at Jesus and says, perfect, and he ascribes his perfection to you, and he says, you can come in and be with me in the Holy of Holies forever. Something greater than the temple. My, my. Man, if that doesn't set you aflame, your wood's wet, pal. I just got to tell you, man. Oh. It was a greater cleansing. It was also a a wider mercy. Something greater than Jonah is here. Why can you have hope this morning? Because there's a greater cleansing and there's a wider mercy. Someone greater than Jonah. You go, well, Jonah, man, that's a trippy story. How, why is Jesus comparing himself to Jonah, the disobedient prophet? Well, you know, Jonah ran away from God. Jonah went to the Gentiles, but he didn't want to. He didn't want to go to the Assyrians. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. Oh, we'll preach through Jonah at some time, and in, 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 you know, well, I hope so. I hope before Jesus gets back, we'll get there, because I love that book. And, and he goes running away. I don't want to go to Nineveh. That's the capital of Assyria. I hate the Assyrians. I hate them. They're always trying to kill us. You've got to understand the situation. This is a bit like God saying to somebody in Kiev, I want you to go to Moscow and preach the gospel. And if you're a Ukrainian this morning and you hear God say that to you, you go, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. And your reaction would be just like Jonas. And I'll tell you why, God. I'll tell you why I don't want to go there. Because I know you and you'll forgive them. And I want them dead. That's what Jonah thought. In fact, when God forgave the Ninevites, it, the last scene of Jonah is him sitting on a hill going, I knew you'd do this. This is why I didn't want to come. I just knew it. All right. Jesus says, my rising after three days 
is going to provide a greater mercy. You know, it's interesting, when Jonah got to Nineveh, you know, David Nicholas was always so careful to teach, you know, when you preach the gospel, you got to have the good news and the, but you got to have both. you got to have the bad news and the good news. Jonah got to Nineveh, and he just, here's Jonah's message. You're dead. You're dead. That's it. That's it. God's going to kill you. That's it. Jonah only preached the bad news. He would not pass a David Nicholas seminar on preaching the gospel. Just want you to know. Jonah walked through the city saying, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead. And the king of Nineveh said, we're dead, we're dead. But let's, let's do this. Let's repent because, listen to this, who knows? This is literally what he says. Who knows? Maybe God will have mercy on us. And so the whole city repented. And the whole city was saved. Jesus comes on the scene, and he says to the whole world, you're dead, but in my resurrection, you can live. Jonah was raised from the depths after three days, but he wasn't changed. When Jesus raises you from the dead, not just eschatologically at the end of history, but right now, right now, out of the deadness of sin, when Jesus raises you, he changes you. He changes you through the good news of the gospel that addresses the bad news of our situation. The bad news is true. We are, by nature, children of wrath. We are bound with the power of sin. We are unable to save ourselves. But the good news is equally true. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. In him, the world hopes. In him, the world hopes. And that brings us to this final issue right on the heels of that Jesus says you know the queen of Sheba she was a Gentile too and she came the people of Nineveh repented the queen of Sheba came who did the queen of Sheba come to she came to Solomon and this is the zenith of Israel's kingdom in the Old Testament Solomon in all of his glory and splendor seated on a throne that was this huge ivory throne and there were six lions on each side going up the steps. Can you imagine what that looked like? Solomon there seated dispensing wisdom and Jesus has the audacity. Jesus, the poor carpenter's boy from the margins up there in Galilee, out there with the hicks, that guy says, a greater than Solomon is here. You go, who could possibly? What wisdom, what deeper wisdom is there in comparison with Solomon's wisdom? Well, listen to how Paul put it. The word of the cross, this is 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will overthrow. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? We preach Christ crucified 
a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, Christ the wisdom of God. Christ the wisdom of God. You know, I haven't heard any choruses about Christ the wisdom of God. I search in vain for songbooks that describe Christ as the wisdom of God. It's like a whole area of Christology we've completely missed and forgotten about. But it's central to Jesus' identity. It's central to his mission. And he's not saying that I am somehow smarter, though he was. What he says, in fact, is this. God's wisdom in the world looks like foolishness. We just had April Fool's Day. Paul said we are fools for Christ's sake. This is, this is my national holiday. He goes on and he writes to the Corinthians. He says, think about, think about yourselves. You think you're something because you were chosen. Who does, God cho- how, who does God choose? He chooses the weak, not the strong. He chooses the foolish, not the wise. Why? Because Christ is our wisdom. And what does that wisdom look like? It looks like the cross. It looks like the cross. Christ crucified is the wisdom of God. And it's an affront. The cross, Tom Holland, remarkable scholar, remarkable historian, notes in his book Dominion that it was the supreme instrument of torture in the ancient world. It was obnoxious. The cross was revolting to people. Uh, Tacitus, the Roman historian, said the word cross should never be even on the lips of a Roman citizen. No Roman could ever be crucified. It's why Paul was beheaded. It was the the death of the, the lowest dregs of society. It was the death of a treasonous, rebellious slave. If they wanted to kill you, they'd take your head off. If they wanted to destroy you and make sure no one ever spoke your name again, that your entire reputation was shattered and that your name was cursed for all of history, no one, they would sponge you from history that's when they put people on crosses no one will ever speak your name again we'll hang you on a cross we'll strip you naked we will lynch you and hang you there until you die and the birds of the air can eat your eyeballs out of their sockets you can bleed and die there and you will die cursed and forgotten your name will never be mentioned again And the early Christians went out into that world and said, here's our message, the cross. They did that because they were trying to think of something popular to tell people that would have a winsome, inviting note to it so they would be attracted to the faith. No, they went out and they preached Christ crucified and everybody went, are you crazy? Are you, have you lost your minds? We are Romans. We don't even say the word cross. We're Jewish. If a person's on a cross, they're cursed. We forget their name forever. You want us to say that the new Lord, the one who's greater than Caesar, you want us to say that the Messiah of Israel is hanging on a cross? That's how we're redeemed? You want us to do that? And Paul would say yes. And somehow, miraculously, in preaching the cross, people came alive. How? Because the gospel is the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. And it is a cross for the wisdom of man. 
If you're sitting here this morning saying, I've got questions for God. Ah, he owes me answers. I'm going to tell you, God does not try to answer all of your questions. He does not offer you easy answers to all of your tricky questions. He does not offer you those answers. He offers you himself. And on judgment day, he will say, draw near, O questioner. I have some questions for you. That's what happened with Job. Job had question after question after question. And then God said, come on in. Job stood before him and said, I have questions. And God said to Job, oh yeah? Where were you when I formed the cosmos? Where were you, Job? You see, the wisdom of God takes all of our intellectual prowess, every single one of our artistic abilities, and humbles them, and we sit before him, and we sit under a cross, because the cross is the wisdom of God that speaks to the depth of who we are because our greatest sin, beloved, is not our sexual licentiousness. Our greatest sin is not our lying and deception. Our greatest sin is not our greed and our envy and our hate and our anger and our violence. Our greatest sin is the one that's at the root of every one of those. Pride. Pride. We are our own gods. We are our own gods. And we want to make our own rules. And we think we can be our own saviors. And God says, I am your savior. You cannot save yourself. The price that is owed is too high for you to pay. The distance, the chasm between us is too great for you to bridge. But I will come to you. The holy God will become a slave and will die a slave's death. And when I do, rather than my name being scrubbed out of history 2,000 years from that moment, thousands of people will gather in a little place called Boca Raton, Florida, and say, there is no other name higher than this name, the name of Jesus. And it is only through his name that we could be saved. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Jew, Gentile, every single one of us. He is the hope of the world. He's the hope of our hearts. It is Jesus greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah, greater than the temple. My friends, put your hope in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. This morning, if you need to put your trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. I'm going to pray a prayer that a sinner would pray. I prayed it on March 31st, 1974. Dear Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you for dying on the cross for me, shedding your blood for me. Thank you for forgiving me. I confess I need a Savior. Jesus, I confess you as my Lord. And I will follow you. I will follow you the rest of my days. Because you will be my wisdom. You will be my hope. I put my life in your hands. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.